Welcome to another episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg and my co-host from the Inland Ocean Coalition, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hey, everyone. Speaking of coastal and inland, about half our seafood is now farmed rather than wild caught. And our guest today, Neil Sims, has been a longtime innovator in the aquaculture industry. He's the founder and CEO of Ocean Era in Kona, Hawaii, where we filmed a few years ago. Ocean Era is looking at new ways to make aquaculture more sustainable, including farming seaweeds for food and shifting the diet of aquacultured fish from wild-caught forage fish meal to algae. Neil was raised in Australia, worked in the Cook Islands, also on pearl farms, founded Hawaii's offshore campeche or yellowtail floating fish farms, much more. But before we get into all of that, Neil, tell us about your first connections to the ocean. Well, aloha, Kaka. Aloha, da- David and Vicky. I'm really pleased to be here. I-, I was born, I was actually born out in the outback of, of Australia, northwestern New South Wales, but my mother had been raised by the ocean. And so when I was two years old, I think she was um, this desperate to get back to the sea. And so we moved the family, the whole family up and moved down to uh, Wollongong, which is uh, a coastal town just south of Sydney on the New South Wales coast. It's a steel town, but it's a very pretty little steel town. Uh, there's suburbs that stretch out along the, the northern coast there, and it's just headlands and beaches, and it, it, it's gorgeous. Uh, and so I, I literally grew up you know, one and a half stone throws from the water and I misspent my entire youth surfing and swimming and just hanging around the beach uh, somewhere near, near the ocean. So I felt the firm hand of fate in the middle of my back just saying, do marine biology, Neil. And that took me to Townsville, North Queensland, where I did a marine biology and zoology degree, came out of that four-year degree and was a little discouraged because the only career opportunities were either in academia or working for the government, neither of which, I mean, I'm 22 years old. I wanted to go and and see the world and suck the marrow out of life. And I took a dice roll and and signed up for the Australian version of the Peace Corps, Australian Volunteers Abroad, hoping that they could get me a job in fisheries management or, or marine biology somewhere. They came back and they said, no, sorry, you don't have any experience yet. But there is a job teaching in the Cook Islands. I was like, where? The the, the Cook Islands. It's If you open up your atlas of the Pacific, it's in the spine in the middle of the atlas. And they gave me two days to make the decision as to whether I would go or not. And I remember hanging up the phone. This was back in the days when you would have a phone in the house. Hanging up the phone in the hallway and walking down to the living room. By the time I got to the living room, I'd made the decision. I told my younger brother, I'm going to the Cook Islands. So they'd set up this new Ministry of Marine Resources and I went and, and, and took a resume down to their office and the secretary said, oh, hang on, hang on. The minister might want to speak with you. And I was ushered into the minister's office and I, I had my pitch all prepared for, I, I figured I was going to be speaking to some underling, but here I was speaking to the minister and I'm, I've got a marine biology degree and uh, I have smatterings of the local language and and I'll I'll work for food and scuba tank fills. And he had said, great, you can be the fisheries research division. Uh, (laughs) Thank you very very much, Minister. What would you like me to do? He's like, well, I don't know, but I know that we need a fisheries research division and you're it. 
<laughs> go away and write yourself a job description and show up down at the fisheries office at the harbour tomorrow morning and tell them that I sent you. And that was just a, a, a gift from the gods to be able to, as wet behind the ears, as inexperienced as I was, to be able to be given that opportunity. And my boss in, in the, the fisheries division there, the secretary of marine resources, was very tolerant of my inexperience and gave me just phenomenal opportunities there. Most of it initially was focused on trying to get a handle around managing the commercial fisheries. And it was incredibly rewarding. And so I I considered, when I came out from that experience, I considered, okay, I, I, I work in marine resource management, but aquaculture is where I see my future. I, I Fisheries management is just too discouraging. So I went back, did some university work back in Australia for another year, and, and then took a job here in Hawaii working for a Japanese pearl oyster company that was looking to do the Japanese pearl oysters in the deep seawater, the cold deep seawater that they pump up here at the OTEC plant here in Kona. The ocean just, thermal yeah. energy conversion plant. Correct, yes, which is, is it works on that you pump in warm water from the surface and, and deep water, deep seawater from, from 2,000 or 3,000 feet deep that comes up at 6 to 8 degrees centigrade. And the energy conversion part of it, it works like a reverse refrigerator, whereas you, you, instead of a refrigerator, you use energy to drive a compressor to create a heat differential. Here you would use the heat differential to drive a generator, a turbine, to drive a generator and produce the electricity. And it works in theory, and also it works at scale. Uh, and so the big challenge for OTEC has been, where is it going to be economically viable to do this at scale? Uh, and it hasn't yet been able to, to reach that uh, fulfillment. But here at the Natural Energy Lab in Kona, you've got this instance of where the tail is now wagging the dog. Once they started pumping all this seawater ashore, well, hang on, we could grow salmon in that cold seawater. We could grow kelp and, and feed that to urchins, or, or we could grow oysters in there. And so over the next 40 years, the Natural Energy Lab was first set up here in the late 70s. Uh, I came here in the early 90s. And for me, it was like you know, being a marine biologist with, uh, I, I found that I have an entrepreneurial bent. This is being like the kid in the candy store, just having your own sandbox to be able to go and, and tinker with things. Uh, and so now there's over 25 different aquaculture companies here at the Natural Energy Laboratory. There's still some energy research that happens, but it, it's a phenomenal place to be working as an aquaculture researcher and, and, and a small business entrepreneur. So you're in Kona, Hawaii, but they've got this big pipe that's pumping deep cold water, cold ocean water up to the surface. The original idea was generate energy, but that cold water also means that you can grow lobster and salmon and seahorses. And, uh, and it's become a, what you're doing, a real innovation lab for aquaculture now. It's a tremendously exciting place to work. I think that the, the gross revenues from all of the companies here in Nell are over $100 million. So I want to talk a little bit about what you do at Ocean Error. Aquaculture is, as I said, half the seafood we consume now. It's, it's a half a trillion dollar industry. It's had a number of problems and challenges. The, uh, the idea of growing 
finfish uh, in farms, but feeding them on forage fish from the wild, for example. You're doing a lot of work in terms of the input, what fish you're eating, also uh, new forms of aquaculture, mariculture, uh, sea vegetables. You could talk about just a few of the things that you showed me when I was uh, visiting your center there. People like to say that that a critically important element for small business owners is focus, 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 just relentless focus. And by that metric, I'm completely screwed because we we look here at the uh, the, the landscape of opportunity and, and the imperative of what we need to be working on. And there's so many areas where we, we, we see need. We work both with, with carnivorous marine fish and then we're working with a herbivorous marine fish, fish that make a living eating seaweed. And then if you're going to focus on herbivores, you also need to focus on the base of the food chain. You need to figure out how to be able to grow the seaweed as well. For each of these areas, our vision is to be able to move production of these species out offshore because in deep water further offshore, all of the work that's been done to date has shown that there's minimal environmental impact. It's probably the least impactful animal protein production system that you can have to be able to be farming the seafood that we crave, to be able to be farming that offshore. And the carnivorous fish, fish such as the, the kampachi or snappers or mahi-mahi, we've been doing a lot of work on reducing the amount of fish meal and fish oil in those diets. You're very correct, David, that, that back 20 years ago, and people were quite happy to have a diet that was perhaps 50 or 60% fish meal and fish oil. And that was... At the time, that made economic sense. But as we, we've recognized, we've got to grow this industry in a way to feed 10 billion people with the seafood that they, they crave. Uh, and we can't do that on the back of Peruvian anchovetas or sardines. We need to be able to figure out more sustainable sources of, of proteins and oils to make up the diets. And fish don't necessarily need to eat fish. They just need the right balance of amino acids and fatty acids. There's nothing that says that you have to feed them fish. And so a a lot of the work that we've done has been moving them towards more uh, vegetarian diets, which is that there's great potential for feeding tofu to fish uh, and using soy oils or canola oils. Uh, camelina oil now is really high in omega-3s. They've got strains of camelina that are really high in omega-3s. They've got strains of of, uh, fungi, schizochytrium. It's sort of one of those ones in between a a, a bacteria and a fungus, but it feeds on corn oil and it is pure DHA, which is is the the main oil that, that is in the fish oil. So there's a lot of potential for replacement of fish meal and fish oil with these uh, agricultural products. And there's also a lot of potential, we believe, for using other animal processing byproducts, which is poultry meal or or feather meal or blood meal from uh, swine or beef or sheep, to be able to use those proteins and oils in a way that you're upcycling them, to reap purpose them into fish feed makes a lot of ecological sense. Plus, it's quite a reversal to go from feeding fish meal to chickens to feeding chicken 
byproducts to fish. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to jump in and ask you, you're talking about changing the, the makeup. Where are you now regarding you know, the research with how much fish you still have to provide or how much can we can we feed them all vegetarian? Can we feed these predators all vegetarian food at this stage or, or are we still in the development stage? It's still in the developing stage, Vicky. We work very closely with, with the offshore farm here uh, in Kona. We've done a lot of feeds development research with them. I'd originally founded that farm back in 2004, and we ran it until 2009. Uh, and since then, we've been more focused on, on the research and development work. 2009, you may remember the global financial crisis. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember that a little it was bit. <laughs> really, it was really pleased to see some other folks step in and take over that operation and continue to run it and it's still it's over my shoulder out the window here as we speak uh and they're producing around 800 tons a year of this sashimi grade uh hawaiian kanpachi which is just a phenomenal fish previously in in the wild it's considered a trash fish because it has parasites in the flesh worms in the flesh in the wild and it also gets ciguatera that the, the reef toxin from being part of the food chain on the reef but when you farm it it has none of, of those issues, doesn't get ciguatera, doesn't get the parasites, and it really packs on just a really rich sashimi-grade fatty flavour. It is a phenomenal fish, both as sashimi and as a cooked product. So we're really pleased to see the commercial production of that Hawaiian kanpachi continuing uh, and seeing it available a, a across the US. We've been working with them to help move them towards Moving the, their diet down closer to the base of the food chain, yes, ideally we'd like to be able to get to vegetarian, but that's a long stretch for a, a, a fish. What we've been able to do is to be able to, the, the first step, the first goal that we had was to be able to remove them from the, the, the reliance on marine sourced proteins and oils, wild proteins and oils from the marine environment. So that has been using feather meal and poultry meal uh, and the schizochytrium, the, the high fish oil um, fungus that, that's grown in, in the Dakotas. Uh, and we've been able to produce a diet that performs as well as the fish meal and fish oil control. Back to David's original question, part of what else we've been working on is recognising that herbivorous fish, fish that actually eat seaweed, they make a lot of sense. In, in the tropics, you look at the biomass of fish on a reef, most of those are herbivores, and some of those are really good eating fish. I used to do a lot of spearfishing in my youth, uh, and I would go and you'd be targeting either the drummers or, or the parrotfish or the unicorn fish. They're really good eating. And it had always puzzled me as to why people weren't doing more research to develop these herbivorous fish. We chose the drummers or the nanue, as it's known here in Hawaii, Rudderfish is another name for it. And it, it's a tropical species that's distributed throughout the warm waters of the world. And it lives up very close in the surf zone, grazing on the seaweed on the reef crest. And they're known as very good eating. Here in Hawaii, it's probably the favorite fish when people go fishing for something from the reef to make poke, the raw fish dish here. It would be the nui that they are pursuing. And over the last 10 years, we've been able to collect some Nanue broodstock, thought through this different species because the, the, the taxonomy on these is very complex. 
very difficult to differentiate the three or four different species that are out there and then be able to produce them in the hatchery and grow them out in tanks and, and get some data on the, the growth performance of them. And we've done some experimental culture also out offshore in the, the next to the Kampachi, put them into the net pen with the Kampachi. And they do very, very well. We like to think of this fish as something you could feed it a tilapia diet and it tastes like a snapper. <laughs> and again, you're talking about the herbivores, which are being completely overfished on the reefs. And so, you know, when you overfish the parrotfish and the drums, you you weaken the seagrass and the corals. And so the idea of feeding this human hunger without taking out of the wild and potentially with aquaculturing herbivores, you might at some point even reach the stage of reintroducing these overfished species back into their habitat for stability, right? That, that, that would be a possibility, yes. Um, we've also, fish that we've produced here in our hatchery, we, we've donated a lot of them out to the, the Hawaii uh, fish pond practitioners. There, there's an extensive network of fish ponds throughout Hawaii uh, that just don't have, have the abundance of fish in them anymore. And so a lot of them are getting overrun by algae, by seaweeds. And so we've provided these, happy to Johnny Appleseed these around. But this is, I mean, it gets to... to, to Vicky's question about are we able to move fish towards vegetarian diets? This is a phenomenal fish that, that it, actually in the wild it is a vegetarian. We haven't yet figured out what seaweed it will thrive on. In our tank trials, we've been feeding them different formulated diets and they do very, very well. The, the growth rate is better than the, the European sea brim, for example, which is, you know, there's 150,000 tons a year of sea brim grown throughout the Mediterranean. And this fish will outperform the sea brim just on the same diet, the same pellets that you would feed to a tilapia. We're really excited about just the whole idea of moving aquaculture down closer to the base of the food chain. Ideally, if we're wanting to move towards a more climate smart diet, we'll all be eating closer to the base of the food chain and there'll be less of it will be terrestrially sourced and more of it will be coming from the oceans. It's one of the five major recommendations from the UN panel on global global climate crisis and the oceans, one of their recommendations was we should be getting more food from the seas. A lot of this work is funded by the US Department of Energy. They're interested in long-term being able to pr produce biomass for as a biofuel using seaweed, because then you can have biomass that doesn't require any land area, that doesn't require any fresh water, and it doesn't require any fertilizer. And so it's got a lot of potential there, but they're also very accepting of if we're going to grow an industry here, we need to go after the low-hanging fruit, as it were. And that's the highest value for a seaweed is going to be into the human food market. We're really blessed here in Hawaii that there's a rich tradition. There's a great love of limu, as it's called, seaweed limu, uh, that traditionally it, it, it was consumed with gusto and all of the different species of seaweed ha have their own Hawaiian names. And when we've taken some of the, the, the seaweed back into the markets or where, where we've shared them with, with local practitioners, people have been really excited to see that. So it, it, it's really rewarding in the way that we're innovating around ways that we might be able to culture these seaweeds, but there's also a connection with the, the tradition and uh, the, the wisdom, the traditional wisdom that, that 
comes with that here in, in these islands. So how do you how do you grow the seaweeds? I know that there's different species, but do you is, is are there ropes that are incorporated or growing on the benthic environment? How do you how do you cultivate seaweed seaweed in Hawaii? Yeah, at, at the moment, all, all of our culture efforts are in, in land based tanks. We, we are proposing to go and to try and move some of this out offshore into the ocean where we can really scale it. Uh, but the, the tank culture, depending on the seaweed, there are basically two different ways that you can culture them. One is tumble culture, where you will have a, a, a tank of water that's about as deep as it is wide, and you'll have aeration in there to tumble and cycle the water around, and, and you'll keep moving the seaweed around, constantly jostling it, moving it. It'll come up to the surface to get the sunlight that it needs, and then it'll get, go back down through the tank. So you can produce some really high-density amounts of, of seaweed some of the species we've been able to produce almost a kilo of biomass per square meter per day. Just stop and ponder that for a minute. Oh, kilo, about two pounds out of a three foot by three foot square area every day. In terms of biomass production, that's phenomenal. Some of the other species that, that don't do well in tumbling, that they're more used to a benthic substrate. And so we're culturing them either on lines or in mesh pouches, such as the, the, the sea grapes. This is the one product that we've already moved into the market here. We're selling that in retail and in food service here in Hawaii. And it's Calerpa is the scientific name for it. And, and it's, I remember first eating this when I was down in the Cook Islands. There was one island that had one patch of reef that was covered in Calerpa. And I remember the first time that I ate this, limu and i was like wow this is phenomenal why isn't somebody farming this well it took 40 years for me to get around to get around to it and here i, I am finally farming it uh it's also farmed in the philippines and okinawa uh and it's has a, a it's almost like, like fish row like caviar we like to think of it as vegan caviar or somebody has described it as edible champagne it has a really popping mouthfeel and so we think there's a lot of potential for this species to be scaling up production of this species today there's all these new directions you talk about some people are talking about moving agriculture inland um inland salmon farming and the like you're talking about moving offshore and, and literally talking about free floating pens you say surrounded by i imagine fairly frustrated monk seals and sharks who are surrounding your campeche but not getting to them what what are what are the challenges i mean you have the technology to track them but have you gone to free floating cages and uh and what are the challenges in terms of tracking in weather in terms of attracting predators but they can't get to the prey or if they do get to the prey what do you do about it robust fences good fences do good neighbors make good fences do good farmers make and this is one of the things that has evolved over the last 20 years with this offshore operation here now, that there's a copper alloy mesh that is very, very robust and that doesn't get fouled. And that's what most most of the netting now is made from that. And there's also a Kiko net, which is a polyethylene terephthalate net, which I'd first heard about this when there was a barramundi farmer in North Queensland that was farming barramundi and had uh, ab absolute headaches with, with the, the crocodiles coming in and just shredding his nets. 
and then he'd put in this Kiko net, and he said, "It's bloody crocodile proof, mate." He was the, the the answer I got down the phone when I was talking about it. And I'm like, that that's a quote for the ages. Bloody crocodile proof. Good robust fencing is important. So I'm just stopping it. Yeah, you'd also ask about uh, inland farming, Dave. So you can edit yeah. this mumbling out. But yeah, I I think that the question of land based salmon production or land-based fin fish production you know, i think fundamentally the world needs more seafood that it's a really low impactful way of producing animal protein but i don't see why we should only ever bet on red or black it's a lot makes a lot more sense when this is such a critical issue we should be betting on both red and black so that we're covering both bases and so i i I, I wish my, my colleagues in the land-based fish production business, I wish them well. I don't feel drawn to that because I'm much more comfortable on the ocean where Mother Nature provides the oxygenated water and the currents and removes the effluents from the pens and where you're working with the natural ecosystem. I'm not mechanically inclined at all. I, I use a wrench to break things rather than to fix things and so well, the idea of having an operation where the, the the survival of your fish and the survival of your company is totally dependent on every all this mechanical stuff working that's my nightmare well and, and also i i get where would you rather be doing your fish farming uh on the waterfront in kona hawaii or downtown minneapolis <laughs> there is that <laughs> thank you david yes there is there is that as well what about sin fish, like sin meats, synthetic uh, meats, protein-based, but grown in labs instead of in the ocean or on the stock farm? Fine. I, I, I would love to see it, and, and I wish them well. Like I say, if they can figure out a way to do that in a way that is environmentally responsible and meets the economic imperatives that we have here to be able to provide seafood, then, yes, bless them. Thank you. And with that, Neil, I'd like to thank you so much for being on the Rising Tide Ocean Podcast and good luck with your efforts. They sound really exciting. Thank you so much, Vicky. Thank you so much, David. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Aloha. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicky Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbar. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier